How many have ever done any research on your family? Okay, this is, I would say we have the most people in this congregation than uh, this group than the others this morning. It's fascinating to, to look at where our family has been, where we've come from. Uh, it, there are, it's becoming more and more popular all the time. I saw this week that there are uh, at least 2 million subscribers to Ancestry.com. And people who use that website to find out more and more about their family and their background. A few years ago, actually this past year even, NBC had a television show, Who Do You Think You Are? And um, it, it, was a, it was a show about ta- famous people and that they uncovered something about their family they didn't know. I think one of the most interesting episodes was about the actress Helen Hunt, who they told her that her great-great-grandmother, who lived in the state of Maine, was the leader of that state's Women's Christian Temperance Union movement, which was a real shock to her because she said when she first heard the word temperance, she sort of recoiled at that. But then as she began to read her great-grandmother's writings, it became clear that the reason her great-great-grandmother was involved in this was because the damage that alcohol was doing in the town and the families and the predominantly toward women and children. And some, she said something in her stirred that things that were important, are important to her, she realized were important to her great-great-grandmother. And there is something about that as, as we think about our past. I think one of my great regrets in life is not knowing more about my, my family and not spending more time talking to my grandparents. I, I had the privilege of knowing my great-grandparents. I was 16 when my great-grandfather died and 24 when my great-grandmother died. And I regret the fact that I didn't spend more time with them asking them about their childhood and their parents and their grandparents and learning more about it because there is something about understanding our roots that helps us to understand a little bit more about who we are. And over the course of the next two and a half months... We're going to be thinking about not so much our physical roots as our spiritual roots. And we're going to take some time each week to to look at people in the biblical story that are a part of our family. And some of them, like our physical families, we cheer and we're excited. We put them up on a billboard. We're related to them. Others, maybe not so much. But they're all a part of the family. And what's intriguing to me is we, uh, I think as we look at these people, we're going to find that we look an awful lot like them. And God has something to say about, the, about our lives through them. Now, if you're going to start with, with the roots, obviously you have to begin with Adam and Eve. You know, it all starts with them and it's with them that it all kind of goes awry. You know, we read the story this morning and abbreviated form of God creating them, putting them in the garden, this perfect place. And then they make, they make choices to reject God and there are consequences from that. I, I remember, you know, well, out of those consequences are, you know, problems with their family. One of their sons kills another son. There's chaos that, that enters the world. As you read the, the historical narrative, you see it just evolving. And we are suffering still the pain of those choices. I remember when, I don't know, six, seven years old, 
we were on vacation and my grandparents in Michigan and my dad got really sick and went to the hospital and discovered they had acute appendicitis. And, and he, so he had to have surgery. And, you know, in those days, they didn't let children into the hospital very much. And so, but they let us in to see him just for a few moments before he went to surgery. And I, I can still remember, it's one of those things you, why did I remember that? But I remember he, he's lying there in bed, he's groaning in agony at this great pain for the appendicitis. And he says, oh, Eve, why did you eat that apple? (laughs) Well, the truth of the matter is, we don't know what fruit Adam and Eve ate. There is some, you know, there's some speculation that perhaps the reason the apple is connected to that is, is the Latin word for evil, malice, and the Latin word for apple, malum, sound similar. And so they, they've connected it. But the, the reality is, whether there are apples there and that's what they ate or not, this is what we have now connected with those events in the Garden of Eden. And that's why I placed this apple here. And, and Ted Murphy has contributed this painting of an apple on the wall. And it's the first of others that we will be displaying this throughout these weeks that remind us of our history and the things that are part of it. But when Adam and Eve rejected God, went their own way, they became imperfect people. And they created an imperfect family. And all of us have been living in imperfect families ever since. Every one of us. Because of of their sin, their view of God is skewed. No longer do they, do they look forward to seeing God and walking with Him in the cool of the day. Now when God comes to them, they're frightened of God. They run and they hide. Because God is no longer someone to be trusted, but someone to fear what He might do. And the guilt of their sin is weighing in upon them and skews their relationship with God. But it also skews their relationship with each other. It makes for an imperfect, problem-filled family. At the end of chapter 2, it says that Adam and Eve, it's before the fall, they are naked and unashamed. One translation says they're naked and they don't shame each other. There's no, there are no barriers. There's, there, there are no, there's no suspicion, no trust issues. There's no self-centeredness. There's no manipulation. They just love each other. They have mutual respect for each other. They have a kind of pure relationship that God intends but after they sin, things are different. Now they feel shame and they feel guilt. And they don't look at each other the same way. And you see that working itself out in the consequences of their sin. Things that were, things that were to be great reasons for great joy for both of them now are connected to great pain and struggle. Bearing children, producing fruit from the ground. But even more, their relationship with each other is skewed and twisted. God says to Eve, you will have a yearning for your husband. In other words, you, your, all of your resources will be toward trying to get your husband to love you. And to be in relationship with you and to care for you. And how will, your husband, how will the husband respond with power? With dominion ruling over you. 
And both sides of that issue are about control. Control, trying to get control so that I'm loved. Trying to get control so that I'm in charge. Trying to get what they want by seeing who can control the other one the most. And we've been wrestling with those issues of control ever since. We see them in our families all the time. I, I need to get what I want. We don't think about giving, we think about taking. About getting our way, making sure things happen the way we want them to happen. Keeping our hands and our control on everything that takes place so that we get what we want. But that's what imperfect families do. And the outcome of this scenario is pain, pain, pain. But it intrigues me that in the midst of all this pain and, 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 and struggle and problems, God gives hope. Verse 15 of chapter 3 talks about the serpent striking the heel of the, of the, of the child, the seed, and that child striking it back. And most people see that little bit of, of, of phrase as a precursor to the coming of Christ. The first word about what God's going to do for his people who are filled with pain and imperfection and difficulty and struggle. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, what do we see? We see him as the great healer. He heals physical problems and he heals emotional problems and he heals spiritual problems and he heals families and people. When he's in the synagogue, the first time he speaks in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, he pulls out the scroll of all the things he could read. He reads from Isaiah and says, this describes him, says that he has come to set captives free, to release the prisoners, to declare the year of the Lord's favor, to heal and restore what is broken and twisted and torn. And that's that's why he comes. He comes not just to heal us as individuals, but to heal us as family and to heal us as the church family. And how does he heal us? For one thing, I think he, he calls us to let go of our unrealistic expectations about family. We have something in the back of our mind that believes family, if we just worked hard enough, could be perfect. Something, something back in there says, if we could just get this under control, it could be what we dream for it to be. It would be perfect. It would be right. It, we, we would eliminate the pain. But it's unrealistic. Because we're talking about dealing with people who are imperfect. And imperfect people create imperfect families. And there are no perfect people. Every family deals in some level with dysfunction. Now granted, there are levels of that. There are heightened levels of dysfunction where the pain is is extreme. And it's deep and it's acute. But every family wrestles with pain. We hurt each other. Every family does. Even the families that we look at and say, wow, they're awesome. 
The family we might have dreamed that we wish we had been a part of instead of the one we were. Every family struggles with it. I was raised in a family where we were Christians, deeply devoted Christians. Even to this day, I cannot think of any of my relatives that are not Christian. And I am the 11th pastor in my family, just if you start with my grandparents. You know, I have to tell people that the only time we ever fought was when we got together for a family reunion over who was going to say grace over the meal. <laughs> but that's not true. Because we fight all the time. And we hurt each other. And we disappoint each other. And we frustrate each other. And we wish things were different. Because we all are imperfect people. And we will never be free from the pain and the hurt and, and, and get to the, find healing in Christ until we begin to let go of those unrealistic expectations that family could be perfect. Your family's not perfect. My family's not perfect. That family that you think is awesome is not perfect. Because there's no such thing. See, we live in our expectations. When are you disappointed? When something you expect to happen doesn't. And you add into that expectations that are unrealistic, that could never happen. And, and, and you raise the level of frustration that much more. And how do, what do we do in those moments? Well, often we get angry, we, we, get, you know, we get burdened, we, and we also try to think if we could just push a little harder, if we could just control things a little bit more, then we could make our family what we want it to be. And the reality is that sense of perfectionism doesn't help families, it destroys them. Because we've just raised the level of unrealistic expectation from what it was. We can't let go of pain and we can't let go of agony because something in us says, if things were just different, if my family had been better, if this had happened, if that had happened, if only, if only, if only, and we hold on to that and we block ourselves off from the healing that Christ wants to do in us. It's only when we let go of those expectations and we admit every family has trouble and and often life isn't fair. And you didn't choose to be born into the family you were born into, but that's what it is. And you let go of those things and God begins to work in us. And it's not just about our, our human family. It's about the church too. There's no perfect church. There's something in us that wants to believe that when we all come together for church, that we all ought to be perfect. We ought not to hurt each other. That we, we would never say things that disappoint, or disappoint each other. But we're talking about putting together a group of imperfect people. And we're going to create an imperfect group of people. It's helped me a lot to come to the realization that the best way, one of the best ways to contextualize the church is to see the church not as a country club, but as a hospital. It's not about everything getting perfect. It's not about everything being just right and everyone dressing just right and looking just right. It's a hospital. And hospitals are for sick people. Have you ever heard a doctor say, I wish these sick people would stop coming to see me? That's why they're there. That's why the church is here. 
And this is not an excuse to say, well, we can do whatever we want to because we're imperfect, so what difference does it make? No, no, not at all. It's just releasing the first layer of place where God needs to heal us and letting go of those expectations so that God can heal us and so that we can become different people and so that we can be more and more as we were created to be. And that's the second thing, that I, the way in which God heals us through Christ, is that he calls us to embrace and to mirror the strategy that Christ uses to heal us. When Christ comes to, and, and brings salvation to the world and healing to the world, how does he do that? By a show of force? Does he gather an army? Does he, does he arm his disciples? Does he start getting into the faces of everyone and yelling and screaming and demanding? No, he, he goes to the cross. He gives of himself. And Paul says in Philippians... Have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Became a servant, taking the nature of humanity and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And Paul says, that's how we live. That's what we do. The answer to all the pain we experience is not to try to control more. It's to let go. It's not to get our own way. It's to give of ourselves. And so we're going to be people who are concerned and who who desire to live in patience. And in gentleness and compassion and self-sacrifice. People who model Christ. You know, we live in a world where everything is becoming so acrimonious with people who disagree with each other. We see this accelerating as we move toward the election in November. And when I hear Christians getting into the mix in, in, in ways that, that, are, that look just like the rest of the world, it, it concerns me. And I know why we do that, because it's the most natural thing to do. When, when people are against us, we fight back. But Christ is calling us to respond differently. Instead of fighting back, we love. He didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples if you win. He said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love. And I find that too often in families, in the church, in society, we are far more interested in winning than in loving. And then we wonder, how come nothing ever gets better? But I think there's also a calling from Christ to commit ourselves to his plan, his plan for family. You know, the, it's interesting that, that the, the whole idea of family isn't something that God institutes after the fall. It is a part of the creation process. 
He creates Adam and he says it's not good for him to be alone. He needs someone else with him. And so he creates Eve and they form the first family. But it's also interesting that once the fall takes place, God doesn't then disband the idea of family. He doesn't say, well, they're going to be imperfect, so we better let that go. No, he says, okay, we're going to take this problem, this, this imperfection in the family, and I'm going to use this in a way that challenges people to trust me more. Our natural response when we're, when we're up against people who disagree with us, up against people that we find hard to live with, our natural response is to run or to fight. We want to get out of it. You know, we, we, we want to say, well, that's too hard. That's too much stress. That's too much difficulty. That's asking too much of me. And so we run. And yes, there are sometimes in our families, in, our, in, in the homes where we live, there's sometimes where the pain and the, and the difficulty is so great that it's dangerous. And we need to get out. That's the right thing to do. Or it's, it's so unhealthy that getting out is the right thing to do. And God makes provisions for that in the scriptures. But most of the time, it's not about danger and it's not about unhealthiness. It's just about, I'm uncomfortable with what I'm, what's being asked of me. I don't want to give of myself. I want to take. This isn't turning out the way I thought it would. And, and I'm out of here. And we do that in the churches too. And granted, there are times in, in church where, again, it's unhealthy or it's dangerous spiritually. And we need to do something else. It's just not working. But it's not a matter of I didn't get my own way. Because see, we're all family. We're connected to each other. And some of you are here today and your family is not around you here. Some of you are students and you're, you're here just for a limited amount of time. And our, our desire and our passion is that while you're here, you would become a part of this church family. That you'd feel a part of this place. And that even with all of our warts and imperfections, you'd find connectedness here. Because we're all family. And that means we accept each other. You know, it's like, it's like that great uncle that, you know, has been collecting bobbleheads for 40 years. And they're everywhere in his house. And you walk in and you just signs flashing, eccentric. Hey, he's family. You, you, you just have to accept it. Or the aunt that has 37 cats and they run the place. You know, hey, it, you know, it's family. And family sticks in with each other. Family's committed to each other, to the ups and the downs. And the hard part about family is that it means being vulnerable. We're really committing ourselves to one another. We're vulnerable with each other. And when we're vulnerable, we're at the greatest risk to be hurt. But we're also at the greatest risk to experience joy and blessing. And that God is calling us to be people who are willing to be vulnerable with each other and to love each other and to care for each other and to commit to each other in our homes and in the church. And yes, it, vulnerability does often lead to pain. But it also leads to great joy and blessing. And God doesn't disband family because we're imperfect. Because he knows that in the moments when we're pushed and challenged and stretched and uncomfortable. That we have the choice to trust him 
and grow deeper or run and continue a life that's shallow. And he's wanting us to experience the depth of what he created us to be in our homes and in this place. And it brings us to this table. That This table, in many ways, is, is family coming together and eating what the Father's prepared. Food for our souls, for the blood and the, and the body of Christ that unites us in Him. We probably will never be united in anything else, but we are united in Christ. In His grace in our lives, in His mercy poured out upon us, in His death and resurrection, and the promise of His return. And at this table, we are welcomed to receive His gifts. In just a moment, we're going to we're going to take communion together, and you're going to be released by Rose to come to the front, and we're going to. Practice the mode of intention where you tear off a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and eat it. And the reason we're doing serving communion this way is so that we can watch each other come and take. So that we can be, we can see each other, and so that we can remember that we're all connected to each other. We're all in this together. We're all family. And that God has created us different. And we may have different theological views about things. And we may have different political views about things. And we may dress differently. We may like different kinds of music. But we're united in Christ. In Christ, we're family. And we're invited to come. And to eat the meal that our loving, gracious Father has prepared for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many gifts. We thank you for the gift of family. Family in our homes and and the family that is the church. And we pray, Father, that, that you will help us to trust you more in our families. And to give of ourselves. And to let you work in ways that are beyond our imagination. Father, we thank you for this bread and this cup. Thank you for your gifts. Pour out your abundant blessing on these elements. That they would indeed be food for our souls. And that they would minister to us. And lead us to a greater sense of our our uniting in Christ. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for loving us and caring for us and bringing us together in Christ. Amen.